in your Bible this morning, the book of First John, and we will continue with that same theme there, First John chapter 5, over near the end of your Bible, the book of First John, a little short book there, First John chapter 5. And here at the Baptist Temple, out of respect for God's Word, we always stand when we read the Scripture. So would you stand with me today? 1 John chapter 5, and I begin reading to you in verse 11. 1 John 5 and 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know, look at that word know, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Thank you, and you may be seated. So can a person know that when he or she dies, what is going to happen after that? Can a person know what is going to happen to them when they leave this planet? That's an awesome, awesome thought. Many people avoid that by just not wanting to think about it, just pushing it out, shutting it away from their minds. But regardless, you're going to have to leave this planet, and you don't know when. I read this week, in fact, this morning I looked it back up. It's on the Internet on one of the very famous websites. A British astrophysicist by the name of Dr. Penrose Uh, says now that there is evidence that he has found in some sort of subatomic particles. He has found evidence of the existence of the human soul and that when people die, that this leaves their body and exists eternally. Now, I don't know the details of his scientific research, But uh, here is a secular professor who says there is such a thing as a human soul way out of character for that type of person in most circumstances. I have a little event here at the church about once every month or six weeks. We call it Meet the Pastor. It's an opportunity for meet people who are attending the church who might be thinking about coming into the membership of our church family. And I go over three or four of the very basic core things that we believe as a church. The most important things, salvation, baptism, church membership, why church membership, and so on. When the people come in the room, I don't want them to sit there and do nothing while the rest of the crowd is gathering. So we pass out a little survey to them. And the first question on the survey, after they give us their name and so on, is... Um, If you died, where would you go? Do you know almost 100% of the people that come to that class write heaven? I'll bet it's in the 90s. 90% of the people who come to the class say, when I die, I will go to heaven. Then there's a follow-up question I have on their survey. 
The follow-up question asks him, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And it has the percentages, 25, 50, 75, and 100%. Now, the same people that have told me that they know when they die, they're going to heaven. And answering my survey, often they'll say, well, I'm not very sure of it by marking 25%, 50%. And the percentage of people who say, I'm 100% sure, goes down to about to less than half of them give me a 100% sure answer that when I leave this planet, I'm in fact going to go to heaven. The choir just sung, and they had what we call the cardboard testimonies. That's the way they refer to them, in which there's a date that they held up, and the date refers to the day and the time when they got saved. Now, if you're not a regular churchgoer, and if you're not immersed in Christian belief and so on, you may not know what I mean by that word saved. To be saved is to be rescued, isn't it? And why would we need to be rescued? And so when you come here, you hear terminology at a church that's sort of insider terminology that Christians use. And I try to be careful not to use too much of that on Sunday morning because I want to preach to people who are not sure about their salvation more than I do even the people who are often. And so... We have this insider terminology, like you go to the doctor, and he starts using those $40 words, you know, and you say, hold on, doc. I don't know what all that means. I understand you went to medical school, but just tell me in simple terms, am I going to live or am I going to die here, or whatever it is. And when you come to church, we want to use clear, simple terms that people know what we mean. To be saved is to be rescued from your sins and given eternal life. And sometimes we use the word redeemed, and they just sung, I am redeemed, and they held up the date that they were redeemed, and redeemed means the same thing as saved. And sometimes we say born again, another synonym for the same experience. Sometimes we talk about a profession of faith. All of them mean the same thing. They're Bible terms, Bible language for the day that we came to know for sure that when we leave this planet, we're going to be with the Lord. Our souls will be with the Lord. My first point to you today is very simple. You can know. You can know. It's possible to know. John's purpose, in fact, in writing the book of 1 John was that people could know. He said that over and over. In fact, if you read that book of 1 John through very carefully and took a pencil and circled the word know every time it appeared, the word know, K-N-O-W, is in the book of 1 John 38 times, and it's a very short book. So salvation is not, sometimes people, will, I'll, I'll talk to them about their soul, and they'll say, well, I hope I'm saved. Oh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not a hope so, or think so, or guess so, or maybe so, or I think so thing. Salvation is, it's possible that you can know for sure that you're saved, that you're not lost, that your soul is not lost. A little boy down here in the country somewhere in 
the rural area of our state, was standing beside the road, and this this tourist came by in his big fancy car, and he didn't know where he was. He'd gotten lost on these back roads. And he said to the little boy, he said, son, let me ask you something. Does this road go to Myrtle Beach? And the little boy said, I don't know, sir. And the tourist said, well, tell me, do you know where Highway 378 is? And the little boy said, no, sir, I don't know. The man was a little bit frustrated and exasperated anyhow because he was lost. He said, son, I want to ask you something. Do you know anything? And the boy said, yes, sir. I know I ain't lost. (laughs) And you know today, it's possible that you can know for sure that you ain't lost. That's not good grammar, but it's a Bible truth. You can know for sure that you're saved. In fact, there are four categories of people sitting here listening to me this morning. Number one, there are those of us who know, and we know why we know. Now, it's not enough to know. It's important that you not only know that you're saved, but it's important that you know why you know that you're saved. Is there a solid basis for it? Is it more than just you wish you were saved and you want to believe your own story? No, it's possible to know and to know why you're saved. Secondly, there are some today who want to know, you'd really like to know that you're secure in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're not sure. And if I ask you privately, if I gave you that little survey and I said, what percentage are, how sure are you in terms of a percentage? And you might say, well, I'm 25 or 50 or 75% sure, but I'm, I'm not absolutely sure. And thirdly, there are those who think they know and they're confused about it. In fact, many people have been misled. They've gotten into some cult or some false teaching. They have bought into some false philosophy, some new ageism or evolutionism or something like that, and it's confused them. They think they know, but they're depending on something that's entirely unreliable. And fourthly, the fourth group are some who don't know, and they know they don't know. You, know, you don't know that you would go to heaven when you died, and you know that for sure. It's not even a confusion, an issue of confusion. You know that you don't know today. Four kinds of people, those who know and know why they know. Secondly, those who want to know, but you're not sure of it. Thirdly, those who think they know, but you're confused or misled. You'd like to know. And then some who don't know and know they don't know. Down on the border of Texas, I used to live in Texas and travel through that part of the country a lot. And between Shreveport, which is right on the Texas line, and Marshall, the first town of any consequence you come to when you're traveling west into Texas on I-20, right along there, there's a little town just uh, over the border the name of it is Uncertain, Texas. It's just a little village. It's, it's just a wide spot in the road. But you'd, I'd look at the sign, Uncertain, Unincorporated. And there must have been about four or 500 people living in Uncertain, Texas. But I always thought about the guy that lived in Uncertain. And he'd go to, you know, to somewhere and they'd ask him, well, what's your address? And he would say, Uncertain. 
And they'd probably say, you're not certain about where you live, sir? Yes, uncertain. And I thought, I imagined that when I passed the little town. It's kind of like who's on first after a while, isn't it? But there's a lot of people in South Carolina that live in uncertain too. And they don't know for sure at all what lies on the other side. I hope you think about it because it's probably one of the most important decisions. It is the most important decision. The Bible says, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? I was flying to Canton, Ohio about a month ago. I sat down on the plane, and I, when I sit down on the plane now, I always pray. I learned this from Mark Cahill that, Lord, put the guy there in the seat beside me that I can witness to him. And so a young man came and sat down beside me on this plane from Charlotte to Canton. And uh, I shook my hand, I shook his hand and said, hello, my name is Bill Monroe, and I'm from South Carolina. What's your name? And he started, he said, I'm from France. And I said, from France, and he spoke good English. And so we began to chat. And uh, I said, I understand uh, in France, this is the state of religion. And so he said, yeah, that's right. And I said to him, well, let me ask you a question. Do you ever think about what's on the other side? He was probably about 27, eight years old. And I'm sure he was an affluent young businessman. He had all the appearances of it. Do you ever think about what's on the other side? We're all going to leave this planet one of these days. And you know what? Uh, We don't get a second go round. Do you know what's on the other side? Do you ever think about it? He said, he looked at me with a blank stare. No, sir. I never think about that. It's probably the only person I've ever met who never gives it a thought. Because a thousand years from now, we'll still be in existence And a million years from now, we'll still be living. The Bible refers to the soul as being immortal and eternal. And it will live on forever and ever and ever. You don't want to live in uncertain. So it's possible you can know that you're saved. Number two, then why is it that people don't know? Why is it that everybody can't write 100% on my little survey when I give it? Well, because I think many people misunderstand the basis of what salvation is about. First of all, many people are depending on some sort of a feeling, some sort of internal, subjective, emotional type of experience. And they've heard Christians, and sometimes I'm afraid Christians have even exaggerated their salvation experience and Oh, it was like bright lights were flashing and angel voices were sounding and all this stuff and they embellish it and people haven't had that experience and they think, well, I didn't have that, so I must not be saved. May I tell you today that salvation has nothing to do with an experience? That some people weep when they get saved because they sense a great relief from their sins and a sense of freedom and forgiveness? And other people show no emotion at all. They're just as stoic as they can possibly be. But it doesn't mean they didn't get saved. It just means people have a different way of expressing their emotions. And so I have led people to the Lord who, as they prayed to receive Christ, they would 
sob and cry and just weep and just pour their hearts out. They couldn't even finish their prayer for, for weeping, overcome with emotion. And then I've led other people to the Lord, and uh, I'd hardly get a word out of them. And, and they would receive Christ as their Savior. Or they would come down the aisle. Sometimes people come down the aisle of the church to, make it, to receive Christ, and they weep. And other times they come down the aisle, and uh, there's no expression at all. And sometimes people rejoice. It's just like a celebration. Those are just different ways of expressing. But, but let me tell you something. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not you are going to go to heaven when you leave this planet. It's just the difference in people's emotional makeup. So don't look for an experience. You're, every person is probably going to have a little different experience. So people don't know if they're trying to get some experience worked up within them. And that will change before the day is over if you do have an experience. You don't have to have an experience. Salvation is not having an experience. It's good if you have one, but you don't depend upon the experience. The second reason I think people don't know is they don't really understand the basis of what salvation is. I know this is true because people are always telling me things that let me know there's more to it than just what I'm going to tell you in a moment. They say things like this. I I talked to a man recently. He said to me, Pastor, you know what? I need to do that. I need to come to Christ. I need to get that settled in my life. I think about that a lot, but I can't do that right now. And I said to him, well, why can't you do it? And he said, well, I've got to clean up my act first. Meaning, he's got to reform his life and cut out all the bad things he's been doing. And then, after he cleans himself up, he's going to come to the Lord. Well, that's not the way it works, folks. You see, the blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us from all of our sins, not me trying to reform my life and be a better person. Now, if I get saved, and I'm genuinely saved, I'm going to be a better person. But it may take a little time to get there. You know, when a baby is born, we don't judge the baby over the baby's bad behavior. And when a person is born again, they're a little baby spiritually. And it takes them a while to grow up and to get mature in the faith. And some of them, it takes a long time. And they have to fall a lot of times and get their nose busted in a lot of different ways spiritually. And yet... As long as they're moving in the right way, there's evidence that what they had was really real. And so you don't clean up your act and reform your life and try to quit all your bad stuff in your life. You come to Christ. And so you've got to understand this. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else, I say to you this morning, everything necessary for you to become saved and know you're saved has already been done. You don't have to do anything else. That's called grace. It means that God gives us something that we desperately need, forgiveness and eternal life, and he gives it to us without without us earning it, without us deserving it, without us working for it. 
He sent his son to die on the cross, and on the cross he paid for our sins, and salvation is already purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I want you to get hold of that. You don't need to do anything else. There's no reason to wait. The price of salvation has already been paid for everybody in this room today. And it's so important to know. You see, I think that's why so many Christians don't ever really get in here in the church and in the Lord's work and serve the Lord. I think down in their mind, there's this little doubt that's lingering there. And it defeats them and it keeps them from really doing what God wants them to do. I read a story one time years ago about when they were building the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, the most famous bridge in the world. And they would build out from one pylon to the next pylon and gradually extended it across the bay. I think it's about two and a half, three miles long. And at the time, it was the longest bridge in all the world. Well, they had 11 men die, fall into the water. And it, 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 bridge building at that time didn't have many of the modern day safety techniques. Bridge builders were paid a fortune. A man could retire early in life if he could survive because they paid him so much because the work was so dangerous. This was 1933 through 1937 when they were building the bridge. Eleven men had fallen into the water and had died from the fall. And the company at great expense in those days, $130,000, ordered a specially built safety net made out of thick manila rope about the size of a man's finger. And they would stretch it from one pylon to the next pylon as they went across the bay. And after they put that safety net in, 19 men fell into that safety net, but were saved. Not one of them perished. In fact, the company designed a little motivation thing, and they make a special badge and a plaque for those men and put their name on it. They call it the Halfway to Hell Club, meaning you had fallen and you were halfway to hell. And this was sort of a prestigious thing, the Halfway to Hell Club men who had fallen but had been rescued. Now, not only after that did they not lose any more men, but here's the amazing thing. Productivity went up 25%. Because when people are safe, they can work faster and better and more confidently and get more done. And when I read that story, I made an application of the Christian life. Because when people know that they're saved, they can have joy. They can have confidence. They feel better about witnessing and working for the Lord and trying to carry out his business. But if they have nagging doubt in their mind, they're not going to be as efficient and as effective for the Lord. That's why it's so important that you know, not hope, guess, think, feel, maybe so, hope so type thing, that you know that you're saved based upon the Bible. And you can know it. About uh, two months ago, I'm standing in the foyer up here after the service. 
one of our members, a man who I had a great affection for, and I won't call his name, <clears throat> but he came by. He always came by and shook my hand. He's one of those people that, that enjoyed doing that. And he came and, and leaned over and put his mouth right up to my ear. He said, I went to the doctor this week, and the cancer is back in my liver and in my pancreas. And the doctor said, you have three to four months to live, and there's nothing I can do. I said to him, you better, you and I better get together this week. And so he called first thing Monday morning because obviously he was very concerned. And he had been a member of this church for 17 years. Well, that Thursday afternoon, about 4 o'clock, he came in to see me. <clears throat> I said to him, I, he told me, he said, I've, been, I've gotten my will updated. I've gone to the bank. My children will be able to sign the checks and take care of all the final expenses. I've uh, checked on my insurance. I've got a grave plot. I've talked to the funeral home. i made all the arrangements. Everything's done. <clears throat> but one thing, Pastor, <clears throat> I said, what's that? He said, well, I want you to hold the service. And I said, sure, I'd be honored to. And I said, but if I'm going to hold your service, I need to know for sure where you're going to be. Now, wait a minute. He'd been a member of the church for 17 years, but if you come in under those circumstances, I'm going to ask you that too. Because <clears throat> it's too important to put it off, isn't it? And so I said, I got to know where you're going to be if I'm going to stand there over that casket. I want to confidently tell people I know where he is because he, he told me. So I said, why do you think that you're going to heaven? And he said, I believe the Bible. And I said, well, that's a good general answer, but that's so general. I mean, you know, the, the Bible says that Satan believes the Bible. This is important. We can't play around. We got to be really specific. We got to get to the point. This is your soul. But why, 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 how, on what basis am I to tell them that the man whose body lies in this box is in eternity in heaven? He said, uh, I believe in Christ. I said, most, 90% of America believes that. I said, I'm going to cut through the chase. You're not giving me good answers. He said, what do you mean? I've been listening to you. I said, you've been listening to me, but you might be saved, but I, I can't tell from your answers 100% sure. And I was sitting behind my desk, and he was sitting in a chair in front of me. And I walked around the desk, and I took my Bible, and I went through the plan of salvation I showed him four things I'm going to show you in a moment real quickly. And when we got through, I said, you're not really sure, are you? And he said, not like I want to be. We got down by those chairs and we prayed. And he received the Lord Jesus Christ for sure. On Saturday, we had the hurricane. During the night, he was very weak. He got up and the power was off. 
And he tripped and fell and hit his head on the bathtub and lay there in his own blood for about 12 hours. And then finally was able to crawl and find his phone and call. And the EMS came and got him. But he had laid there so long, he now had a serious blood clot as well as the cancer. And at noon on Monday, they called me and said, he's, he's gone. He, he was 73 years old. He made it by four days. It's cutting it short. Anybody want to live 73 years and gamble, make sure? Now, he might have been saved. I can't say for sure. I'm certainly not trying to judge. But I'm telling you, I don't think he knew for sure. And I've had that on my mind. I preached the funeral, but I haven't been able to get that off of my mind since. So let me tell you four things you need to know to be able to know for sure. How can a person know that when they leave the planet that they are going to be with the Lord? Number one, we have to realize that we've all sinned, and sin separates us from a holy God. One sin can keep you out of heaven. God doesn't judge on a, he doesn't judge on a curve. He doesn't grade on a curve. Because he is absolutely 100% holy himself, then he demands that of us. And none of us are. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. It says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It said in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not one. I'm not righteous because I'm a preacher. You're not righteous because you're an FBT member. Nobody's righteous because they live a good moral life. Because the holiness of God and the holiness of man is so inseparable, you can never fathom the gulf that exists between them. We are, and, and in addition, we're helpless to do anything about it. I've sinned. I've got this sin on my record, word, thought, deed, action. And it's separated me from God. And there's not one earthly thing I can do about it. Not one human thing that I can do to remove those sins. Number two, sin deserves a just punishment. The Bible says every sin and every transgression will receive a just punishment payment of reward. It will, God will be a just God. And so God is not going to let me off just because I want to be let off. I talked to somebody recently and I said, we were talking about their, their, their salvation. And here's what the person said to me. Well, I think I'm saved because I ask God every night to forgive me. And I said, you're dependent on the fact that you ask God for forgiveness and the person never mentioned Christ, never mentioned anything that the Lord had done. No, I just asked God. I know that God is a loving God and he will forgive me. Now listen closely because I don't want you to misunderstand. I said, you might as well ask God to send himself. What? 
I thought God forgave. I said, God does forgive, but he's got to have a basis for forgiving. He doesn't forgive us because we beg to get off. If I stood in front of an earthly judge and I was guilty and condemned of my crime, judge, please, 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 I beg you, I beg you, please forgive me. The judge would say, I can't forgive you. The law says your sin must be punished unless there's some basis for it. And so you don't just beg God to be let off for your sins. That's asking God really to be unjust himself. So how can I get forgiveness? Number three, Christ came and took the punishment for my sin. Christ came and he took the punishment for my sin. We call that the doctrine of substitution, meaning that Christ took our place on the cross. Now hear me and hear me well today, my friends. When Jesus was hanging on the cross 2,000 years ago, he was not there for anything he did. He was there for my sins. And my sins were upon Jesus Christ. He was there taking my punishment, being punished for the sins of all of humanity because he was God, he could do that. Now, how many of my sins did Jesus die for? The book of Titus in the Bible says he has redeemed us from all of our sins, A-double-L-L, all the sins of your past, all the sins of your present, and all the sins of your future, Christ has died for them. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, he bore our sins in his body. It was as if Almighty God took our sins and placed them upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus. And he was punished by wicked men for our sins. And now that God has seen every sin punished, Now that my sins have already received the just punishment, God can forgive me. Not because I beg him to forgive me, but because Christ took my sins upon him. Isn't that good news? That's called the gospel. And you know what number four is? That God has promised to save everyone who trusts in Christ. The word believe, we use it real loosely. What does it mean to believe on Jesus Christ in the way the Bible teaches here? It means to rely upon him, to trust him, to put your confidence in him, to totally depend upon what Jesus Christ did when he was on the cross. And the Bible's full of all kinds of of. Uh, verses that indicate that. John 3, 36, a wonderful verse. He that believeth on the Son, that means depends on, relies on, puts confidence in, rests in him, hath, past tense, already has, everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see eternal life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 5 and 24 is another one. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, past tense, already has, see in this life, everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, doesn't have to fear hell, 
but is passed from death into life. In the book of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, almost everybody knows that one. For by grace are you saved. God's unmerited, undeserved favor that he gives to us. And not of yourself, meaning nothing we can do. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest we should boast. 1967, February the 25th, my wife and I stood at the altar of the First Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas, a beautiful, beautiful church building. And my pastor, Dr. Homer Ritchie, was presiding. And we held hands and we made our vows. And I remember afterward going to the reception, I remember a guy asking me, well, Bill, do you feel married? And I said, not so much, just don't tell her. <laughs> I don't really feel any different than I did when I walked in here. I thought I would, but no, I don't feel any different. Was I married? Oh boy, was I married. <laughs> it's been a long time and I ain't got out of it yet. I'm going to tell you that. That'll get me in trouble. Now I'm afraid to go home with my dear wife. No, seriously, I didn't feel any different than I walk, when I walked in that church. But I have a symbol of it that I've worn, and we've both kept our vows now. It's been almost 50 years we got married when we were little children. <laughs> and there's a symbol of it. But you know what? I could pull that off and throw it away, and I'd still be just as married. That's just a symbol. We got a lot of symbols in Christianity, baptism and church and Sunday school and stuff. That's not salvation. And I didn't feel any different for a while. Now I feel very married. And I don't, I have a few memories of that night, but not overwhelmingly so. I've forgotten some of the details. I don't know what flavor the punch was. But I know why I'm married, if for no other reason. There's a piece of paper hanging on our bedroom wall that my wife framed. It says, State of Texas, Certificate of Marriage. It's got a gold seal on it, stamped by a notary and signed by that preacher. And my wife hung it up there to remind me every day. I got a piece of paper that says officially I was married. I've got a piece of paper, ladies and gentlemen. 1 John 5, 13. These things have been written that you could know. Say it with me. Know. Know that you have been born again. And so this morning, I got a cardboard testimony here. Today's date, because you know what? This could be your testimony. Today, here at the Florence Baptist Temple, I realized that I had sinned against God. I realized that sin separated me from God, and there was a punishment for it. That day at the Baptist Temple, looking back, you could say, Christ came and took the punishment for my sin. And God promised that if I would 
receive him, he would come into my life. And when I leave this planet, I know where my soul is going. I want you to bow your head with me, if you will, please, for a moment.